Hey everybody, Justin here. Two things before we begin. First, so that you're not distracted when you get to this part in the episode, I wanted to let you know ahead of time that you might be surprised by a couple of details in my telling of the story, specifically who sells Joseph and who delivers the news to Jacob. I won't get into it here, but I will say I have reasons for this. And if you're wondering why I tell it that way, I'm sharing that and some other really interesting things about this story in this week's edition of The Latest, an email I send out to several hundred of you every other week. If you want to hear about how I too was surprised by those details in this story, you can sign up for the latest at holyghoststories.org, holyghoststories.org, or by clicking the link in the show notes. And if you're listening after November 8th, 2021, you can just head to the archives of the latest and check out the issue from November 8th. All right, second thing, thanks to you, in October of 2021, just nine months after its beginning, Holy Ghost Stories had reached 50,000 downloads. That is amazing. When I think of someone listening to one of these episodes, spending that extended moment with their Heavenly Father by way of one of his stories from Scripture 50,000 times, I just don't have words. And you're everywhere. You're listening in Colorado and Washington and Tennessee and New Hampshire, Florida and Montana and Michigan and Texas, Vietnam and New Zealand and South Africa and Peru, England and Spain and Hungary and Ireland, all 50 states in America and 50 different countries around the world. I just, it's amazing. Now, here's why I tell you that. I'm gathering patrons to support this show financially as we close season two, and I want you to know that when you partner with me and give some of your hard-earned money to enable me to create more Holy Ghost stories, you're not just funding a podcast you like. You are taking the life-changing stories of Scripture and sending them across the world. God is using this podcast to connect with person after person in ways that are changing them, giving them time to look at him, get to know him and love him more deeply. That's what you're enabling when you become a patron of Holy Ghost Stories. I'll devote my life to telling these stories. Yahweh has been so faithful to send them far and wide. The only thing that's left is you chipping in and becoming a patron. That's how the body of Christ works, right? God uses each of us bringing what he's given us to do something none of us could do alone. I can't do this without you. So let's do it together. And the next time you hear me telling one of the shadowy, enchanted stories of the Old Testament, you can think to yourself, that's our podcast. We did that together. And then you can pray for someone far away who's also listening to that story, a story you helped to tell. And if you jump in before the end of this month, that is before November 30th, I will send you an official patron saint of storytelling t-shirt or sticker as my thanks to you. But you've got to act quick. That only lasts through the few weeks left in this month, and and you and I both know nothing's happening after Thanksgiving, and so you got to do it before then, probably. Oh, and there's one more really fun thank you I will tell you about at the end of this episode. I think you are going to love it. All right, patreon.com slash holyghoststories, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash holyghoststories. The link's in the show notes. Thanks for being great partners. Now, without further ado, here is the Companion, and the Chosen One. How sturdy are the plans of God? What happens to divine dreams when the slings and arrows of darkness are flung? Can they survive? This is the story of a father and a son who wanted Yahweh's plan to succeed, but found it threatened 
endangered by the nefarious actions of others, sure, but imperiled as well by their own failings. It's a story about whether or not Yahweh could bring a dream to pass in the midst of one family's humanity. And it's a story about the way Yahweh's quiet does not indicate absence or inactivity, even when he's quiet in the shadows. I'm Justin Gerhorn. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. The old man works carefully in the lamplight, his feet hovering atop the treadles of the loom to raise and lower the shafts, bringing each into play like a conductor calling various instruments to the fore. His eyes glisten as he surveys the emerging material with pleasure. So many colors, dyes acquired at great cost, a dear price for a dear son, the dearest of his twelve boys. Red like the color of a robin's breast, the pink of a spring sunrise, green you could mistake for the Hebron Valley itself, purple like a king's robe. And all of these shades here in one place, as if they were a collection of Jacob's hopes and dreams tucked away in this singular garment of his own design. Did his mother teach him how to do this during all those hours he spent with her among the tents, his brother out hunting? The loom clatters on into the night, a blur of wood and ropes obediently responding to Jacob's inputs, feet falling and rising, hands tugging the beater and then sending the shuttle back and forth across the warp, fabric woven in the push and pull. It's the kind of work that lets your mind wander. And wander it does, surely. Jacob thinks perhaps of the day his beloved Joseph was born, the son of his old age, the firstborn child of his most cherished and long barren wife, Rachel. Reuben, Simeon, Judah, and the other three, they're all Leah's children. The wife Jacob's father-in-law cheated him into taking first, Dan, Naphtali, born to Jacob by Rachel's servant, Bilhah, Gad and Asher from Leah's servant, Zilpah. But Joseph and Benjamin, they're the only ones with their mother's eyes. And with Rachel gone, those eyes could not be more precious to Jacob. How delighted he'd been that day when he held Joseph for the first time. An immediate preference. So that was what his father felt when he looked at his brother Esau. Generational patterns can be so hard to break. Jacob thinks too, perhaps, about the report 17-year-old Joseph brought back recently about his brother's performance as herdsman. It was not favorable. Frustrating. Why can't Jacob's other sons be more like... Yes, he's chosen the right boy. 
might as well abandon all pretense and crown him the functional firstborn with this robe, a symbol of his love. It will be like a coat of armor, a father's protection against the aggressions of a cruel world. Who says you can't protect your child from hardship? The others won't be happy, but they'll get over it, surely. Ever since the robe, it's been different. Joseph's ten older brothers knew, of course, suspected at least, that their father was partial to Rachel's firstborn. But with that gaudy badge of prejudice having been bestowed on Joseph, well, it's impossible to ignore. And the way he wears it, sauntering around like a prize goat. Reuben and Judah... Levi and Dan, all of them, they can't bear to be around Joseph. Anything they say to him drips with venom and resentment. And who could blame them? But what about Joseph? What is it like to be him? Second youngest amongst a brood of a dozen children, his brothers, older, stronger, angry, thrust into a web of bias and jealousy, a a child and then a teenager who's not wise enough to navigate the complex landscape before him in a way that doesn't exacerbate the drama. Before you pick up on your father's favoritism, you pick up on your brother's disdain, and the shadow of their bitterness turns you toward the sunlight of your father's love. The more they hate you, the more you crave his unjust affection, the more you drink up his favor the more they despise you. It's a vicious cycle. 17 years of your brothers being bigger, closer to the front of the line. What's left for an 11th son? Surely Joseph wants what all teenagers want, to exert control over his surroundings, to act rather than just being acted upon. The years of childhood submission piled now like a too heavy cloak he's ready to shake off. Perhaps he has a sense even that he's destined for power. But maybe that's just his father's partiality conveying a sense of entitlement. Or is it? One night, Joseph goes to sleep, just as he has more than 6,000 times before, but this night is different. Tonight, Joseph dreams. He's out in the field with his brothers, and they're harvesting grain, wheat or barley, it doesn't matter which. The sickle has been put to the stalks, and now the sons of Jacob are binding the grain into sheaves, each one of them ties off a bundle and lays it on the ground. But then Joseph's sheaf stands up as if it's alive. His brother's sheaves then come to life as well, but they gather around Joseph's and bow down to it. Joseph awakens, blinking, remembering, smiling, probably. This was no ordinary dream. This dream was from Yahweh. 
and Joseph knows exactly what it means. Listen to this dream I had, he tells them the first chance he gets. As Joseph recounts what he saw, his brothers get the unambiguous message. Their faces betray their ramped up hatred, but if Joseph notices, he disregards it or takes satisfaction in it. Are you really going to reign over us? They ask him. Are you really going to rule over us? Incensed and entirely incredulous, they leave their brother to his ridiculous vision. But this is not the end of Joseph's dreaming. Soon, maybe a couple of months later, maybe three weeks, maybe the next day, Joseph falls asleep and sees something else. He's standing outside in the middle of the day. No, it's nighttime. Wait, how can he see the stars while the sun is shining? One, two, three, four, five, eleven of them. And there's the moon, all of them shining beside the sun. But they're moving now, each celestial body shifting downward, first to mid-sky, then to the horizon, sunset and moonrise and circumpolar starshine all at once. And then the horizon drops away, and the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars fall down somehow at Joseph's feet, bowing before him in cosmic obeisance. He wakes, breathing heavy, eyes wide with wonder, the same dream as before. Different, of course, but the same. A message from Yahweh. A prophecy. He has to tell someone. His father. And why not? His brothers, too. Evidence that he wasn't making the first dream up. Look! Joseph says to them, his father and brothers standing around him, Reuben's eyebrow raised. What's the eleventh born going to tell the firstborn now? I had another dream. If his siblings turn around to leave, Joseph stops them. I did. And this time the sun, moon, and stars, eleven stars, were bowing down to me. Anger disgust even on the faces of Naphtali and Asher and Simeon and Judah and Dan, Joseph looks to his father, the father who loves him above all the others, seeking an oasis of validation in this desert of contempt. But Jacob's face is vexed. What kind of dream is this that you've had? He says to Joseph, are your mother and brothers and I going to come and bow down to the ground before you? It's too far, this dream business. He gave the boy the robe, set the seal on his favor. Was that not enough? Is his clear preference not enough? Now the boy wants to rule, not just over his brothers, but his own father? Absurd, outrageous, selfish. But if it was a dream, then it didn't come from Joseph. It came from... As the days pass, Jacob cannot stop thinking about what Joseph said, what these things might mean. It will be a long time before it all becomes clear. 
It's been quiet in Jacob's house the last couple of weeks. Peaceful, even. No yelling, no passive-aggressive infighting, no silent but unignorable tension. A welcome respite. Sadly, though, this is not because there's been some radical reconciliation or spirit-guided conflict resolution between brothers. No, this is not so much the presence of peace as it is the absence, the deferral, really, of conflict. After the second dream, things threatened to get out of hand, and so Joseph's father sent the older sons to Shechem with the flocks, 50 miles away, far enough, hopefully, to give them a chance to cool off. But with each passing day, Joseph has seen his father's face grow heavier with concern. It's understandable, certainly. A rift like this could widen with the imposed distance. With all those flocks in hand, Jacob's sons could decide to leave their father, start fresh out in Shechem or beyond. Jacob needs someone to check on them, make sure they're not doing anything drastic. Your brothers, Jacob says to Joseph, are pasturing the flocks at Shechem. You know this. Joseph nods. Get ready. I'm sending you to them. I'm ready, Joseph replies. Surely, Jacob counsels Joseph to keep his distance and just observe. Surely, Jacob knows that if his older sons find out Joseph has been sent to spy on them, things might escalate. But Joseph's skills in dreaming, it turns out, far exceed his skills in spycraft. His observation will not go undetected, and things will escalate. When Joseph arrives in Shechem, his brothers are nowhere to be found. Has it happened? Did they? But as Joseph scans the horizon, he sees a man approaching. Joseph moves toward him. What are you looking for? The man asks. I'm looking for my brothers, shepherds. They would have been here pasturing the flocks. Did you see them? Can you tell me where they went? They've moved on from here, the man says. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. What are the chances that Joseph would encounter the very person who overheard? Minimal, surely. What a serendipity. Miraculous, almost. Joseph sets out across the 15 miles of land stretching north from Shechem to Dothan. It's more dusty than usual, what with the recent lack of rainfall. Many of the cisterns, he's noticed, are empty. If someone fell in, there'd be no water near the surface to catch them. They'd just keep falling. When he approaches the town, Joseph sees hundreds of sheep grazing in the distance, and one, two, three, ten shepherds keeping watch. Since they're keeping watch, however, they spot Joseph at the same time he spots them. He's not hard to see, of course, thanks to that robe he's always wearing. At this point, things accelerate rapidly. One look at Joseph, obviously sent by their father to check on them, and the brothers practically fly into a rage. While Reuben is somewhere further off with one of the flocks, one of his brothers sees Joseph and calls to the others, Here comes the dreamer! At this, the sons of Jacob convene the way men with a common enemy are wont to do. 
whispering together, looking over their shoulders, their envy and bitterness conceive and give birth to a plan. Come on, let's kill him. Let's kill him and throw him in one of the cisterns around here. Who says that first? Do the others balk when these words are spoken? Are they offered initially in jest? If they are, they soon gain momentum amidst the miniature mob. We can say that a vicious animal ate him, one of them brainstorms. Joseph gets closer. It's clear his brothers have recognized him, and so he approaches directly, unaware of the plot being hatched. Yes, another one chimes in. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. By this point, Reuben has joined the others. Hearing their plan, he intercedes. Let's not take his life. The others look at him as if to ask what side he's on, and Reuben adds, Don't shed blood. Throw him into the pit out here in the wilderness, but let's not beat him or kill him. The nine others think for a moment and nod. Death by starvation in a pit. It's certainly not letting Joseph off the hook. Reuben, though, has a more reasonable path in mind. Once their thirst for vengeance has been sated a bit, he thinks, he can circle back to the pit in a couple of hours, pull Joseph out, and bring him home. His brothers will thank him in the end. Joseph finally reaches them, curious perhaps at the attention fixed on him as he draws near. But then, as soon as he's within reach, he sees his brothers lunging at him, grabbing the flapping edges of his robe, a flurry of fists grasping red, the color of their pent-up rage, pink like their flushed cheeks, green you could mistake for unbridled envy, purple like the robe that 1800 years from now will adorn the mocked Christ. Joseph kicks and punches as his brothers rip the robe off of him and grab his flailing arms and legs. They're older, stronger, and there are too many of them. In the blur of skin and hair and sweat and color, Joseph can feel himself being dragged. In moments, his toes are balancing on the edge of a black cavity. Joseph shoves his weight backward, but it's not enough. The sons of Israel heave their father's favorite child into the pit his cries echoing in the blackness as he falls, a dull thud marking the nadir of his descent. Breathing heavy and wiping the dust from their clothes, Zebulun, Levi, Judah, Dan, Simeon, and the others stand well atop their supercilious sibling. Who's bowing now? From below, Joseph hears them begin to walk away and yells, a plea, an indictment, a curse, perhaps all three in succession as it becomes apparent that they are not turning around. In the darkness, Joseph prays surely to Yahweh. This is not what he dreamt about. The sons of Jacob sit down for a meal, famished after a hard day's work. They sit well out of earshot of the pit, of course. Nothing ruins an appetite like one's brother pleading for his life. 
The shepherds pass around the bread and the cheese. As they eat, they spot something in the distance. Traders, Ishmaelites, judging from the size of the caravan, on their way from Gilead to Egypt. Ishmaelites, descendants of their grandfather's brother, Ishmael, a boy cast out of his father's camp, left for dead in the wilderness, just several dozen miles from here, in fact. He did not die, though. Word is, Ishmael ended up in Egypt and raised twelve sons, each of whom now leads a clan of his own. How does something like that happen? A reversal of that kind of magnitude? The camels of the Ishmaelites lumber along the dusty road, loaded down with wares, frankincense, resin, and balsam, all mined from the hearts of northeastern trees, refined and now bound for incense, perfume, and medicine, Israelite imports shaping Egypt's worship and romance and wellness. Suddenly, as if inspired by a muse, Judah speaks up. What do we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. This magnanimous suggestion takes hold. Judah's brothers are in an agreeable mood now that their bellies are full, and they nod one after another, considering the proposal, avoid fratricide, and make some money on little Joseph. Not bad. But the Ishmaelites are not the only people on the road, and the brothers take too long eating their lunch. A band of Midianites, also descendants of a son of Abraham, are first to Joseph's cistern, obscured perhaps by a hill or two between the pit and the spot where Judah and the rest have been eating. Joseph's brothers haven't seen the Midianites, and as the band of travelers passes by the cistern, they hear someone shouting from within it. Or perhaps they're shocked when they stop here for a drink only to find the whole void of water but occupied by a boy. The Midianites then pull Joseph out, but not to liberate him. They tie him up and bring him to the Ishmaelite traders. Still getting over the betrayal he must feel from being captured by his rescuers, Joseph watches helplessly as they sell him into slavery for 20 pieces of silver. The Ishmaelites load him up with the rest of their goods and set off for Egypt. When Reuben shows up by himself to get Joseph out of the pit, the traders are miles away. Too late. Reuben, horrified, tears his clothes in anguish. He runs back to his brothers, shouting, The boy is gone! What am I going to do? The men look at one another, startled, no doubt, at both Reuben's surreptitious rescue attempt and Joseph's mysterious disappearance. Do they wonder what exactly happened to their brother? Do they see the dust cloud in the distance of the Ishmaelite traders and think about going to see if Joseph is among them? Do they assume Joseph somehow escaped from the pit but must have been attacked by beasts or 
robbers, given the fact that his precious coat is still lying there on the ground? He never would have left it. No one will know precisely what goes through their minds. Except it's now, it seems, that the sons of Jacob begin thinking about Jacob. They can't just return without Joseph, and they certainly don't want the specter of a lost favorite son haunting their father's imagination. The possible return of Joseph would dominate their home even more than the presence of Joseph always has. No, they must convince him that Joseph is dead, gone forever. Give their father closure. But in a way that removes any whisper of guilt from them. Something that leads Jacob to draw his own conclusions. Suddenly, someone has an idea. Moments later, one of them, Reuben or Judah maybe, is headed toward a colorful lump on the side of the path not far away. He grabs the rope they ripped from Joseph's shoulders and walks back to the others. Meanwhile, another one or two head out into the bush, find a young goat, and wrangle it to the ground, securing its flailing legs. In silence, the others watch as one of them pulls his knife across the animal's throat, and another holds the robe beneath the warm, spilling blood. Pink, green, purple, orange, blue, now painted a splattered red. Why not just slaughter a sheep? They're surrounded by them, of course, being shepherds and all. But perhaps that's the reason. Perhaps these shepherds can't bear the thought of killing one of their sheep. Too valuable, too beloved. You don't perpetrate violence against the living, breathing thing you love. The 65-mile journey back to Hebron must be grave. Surely not a single one of them can help imagining the way his father will react, the pall that will come over their clan as the black smoke of grief invades every space, leaves its smell on their clothes. They try to put these things out of their mind, of course, but a 65-mile walk gives one a lot of time to think. The sons of Jacob, though, do not make the trip immediately. They'd rather not be the ones to bring their father the news. Too messy. Too risky. Instead, they send someone, a servant likely, to go ahead of them and bring the robe to Joseph's father. Why did deceit and cowardice make such common bedfellows? Jacob's tent. He knows something's wrong, surely, when it's not Joseph who returns with news of his brothers, but someone else who returns with news of his own. The man enters, holding the robe aloft, its long sleeves dangling like the arms of a suspended corpse. Jacob takes one look at the garment and his heart drops. He grabs it as the servant reports, This was found by your children. Examine it. Is it your son's robe or not? The old man turns the fabric over in his hands, a kaleidoscope spinning amidst his wrinkled fingers, every ounce of him wanting to drop it to get as far away from this morbid evidence as possible, and 
at the same time unable to stop looking at it, unable to turn away from his son's blood staining this symbol of their mutual affection. Jacob's voice trembles. It is my son's robe. And then, fingering the torn seams and the crusted blood, his imagination racing to horrible places, Jacob manages a vicious animal has devoured him. Joseph has been torn to pieces. He rips his clothing in agony, crying aloud as scenes perhaps play cruelly in his mind, an infant Joseph making eye contact with him for the first time, Rachel breastfeeding their unlikely son and glancing up to catch Jacob staring at them, misty-eyed. What? she asks, smiling the boy taking his first unsteady steps while his father shouts to Rachel to come look. Joseph holding him, their tears smeared together as they sit beside the soft soil of Rachel's grave. His son's face when he brought him that robe. This robe. Jacob strips and clothes himself in sackcloth. He mourns day after day after day, after day, after day. When his other sons finally return from Dothan, they try to comfort their father. Jacob's daughters do the same, but the old man waves them away, refusing to be consoled, wrestling alone with his grief. Where is Yahweh's blessing? The one Jacob fought so hard for on the banks of the Jabbok all those years ago. And what of Joseph's dreams? In the northern reaches of Egypt, the captain of Pharaoh's guard walks among the market stalls, examining the slaves offered this morning for sale. He points his attendants to a young man with a strange accent and instructs them to purchase him says he has a feeling about that one. In a matter of months, Joseph, strange accent and all, will be in charge of Captain Potiphar's entire house. And every day, surely, he will wonder if he'll ever see his father again. Four hundred miles away in Hebron, Jacob sits by the fire, watches the flames dance, orange and blue and yellow above the glowing red coals. So many colors. Did he keep the robe to remember his lost son? Does he hold it now? How sturdy are the plans of God? This is a question many have found themselves asking in the shadows. For these two, the answer will not come for another 20 years. But it will come. Hey, 
Justin here. Thanks so much for listening. I hope this telling of Joseph's story blessed you. I want to say that I'm so grateful to all of you who've jumped in on Patreon to support the show. Real quick, I want to tell you about three people you have directly affected by partnering with me this way. First, I heard recently from a youth ministry director in Texas. He said, a friend told me about Holy Ghost stories and I am a little obsessed. I think they are wonderfully done and really captivate the imagination. I shared one of them with a high school guy last night who's been in the church his whole life, pastor's kid, and he loved the way it made scripture real. I loved getting that email. The second one, I spoke to someone this summer in Florida who is sharing these episodes with his ultimate Frisbee team. They're not really religious, but they're totally up for listening to good stories, and this show is sparking some exciting conversations. Okay, last one. A few weeks ago, I got this note from somebody who said that while she and her husband were on vacation in Hawaii, they were relaxing in a hot tub at their hotel and met this couple. As they talked, the four of them discovered they were all Christ followers. They kept chatting, and this couple told her about Holy Ghost stories. She's already got several podcasts she listens to, and so she wasn't really looking for another, but, and I'm quoting here, dang, this one is not to be missed. She said, growing up in church, I'm familiar with the stories you're telling, but you bring them to life in a whole new way. This perspective is so beautiful, and I've honestly been brought to tears numerous times. I finished binging all 17 episodes today, and I cannot wait for what you have planned in the future. Patrons, this is what you're enabling. Thank you. And if you're thinking about becoming a patron so that this show can keep affecting folks around the world, thank you so very much. Finally, huge props and gratitude to the Tours. Boo, Helen, Jared, and Kaylin, Elizabeth, Scott and Susan, Rick, Mindy, Maddie, April, Eric, John, Sarah, Ricky, Brandy, Kimmy, Steve, Patrick, Liz, Stevens, Terry, Jack, Nelwyn, Jamie, Stephen, Bill and Trina, Jessica, Ken, Alyssa, Sloan, and Jamie M. I'm so grateful for you. If you want to join forces with me and these champions of patronage, head to patreon.com slash holyghoststories. There's a link in the show notes. Oh, and do it quick. Jump in before the end of November so that I can send you a patron saint of storytelling t-shirt or sticker. Till next time.